All right. So it's Mother's Day, and sometimes whenever I'm preparing a sermon, I take into consideration the fact that it's going to be a special day, a holiday. But other times, I just go as the Lord leads me, and I prepare a message. And then often after the fact, often after the fact, I realize, wow, what I prepared perfectly lines up with this day, and it goes along with it. It has a similar theme or the same theme. And so today, as I think about Mother's Day, I think about the legacy that's been passed on to me, and that's what I was talking to Nana about earlier. She passed on a legacy to her kids, and uh, her kid, my mom, passed that legacy on to me, and that's what I'm doing with my kids. And it's the same legacy that we're passing on, not just to those who are part of our immediate family, but also everybody. I mean, everybody has a stake in this legacy, and they have that because of what Christ has done on the cross and paying for the sins of the whole world. And so it's our job to take this message out there so they can believe it, and that stake can become actual, that that inheritance can become theirs in truth because they've accepted it. And so the title of this message is The Condescension of Faith. I, I toyed with two different titles, one, Obedience of the Faith, one, Condescension of the Faith, and they both they both go along with each other, as you'll find. But we're going to be in Romans 10 this morning, Romans 10, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 15. And before we get started with reading through the text, I want to explain what my title means, condescension of faith. When people generally think of God condescending to save us, they think of Jesus sitting on the throne, stepping off his throne, coming down into the world, being born of a virgin, suffering and dying for us on the cross, and then coming back from the dead and ascending back to where he was before. That's all 100% true. And that's generally what we think of when we consider the humility of the Lord. But what I want to share with y'all is a different kind of condescension that scripture describes. So you've heard the song probably, um, you know, he came from heaven to earth, you know, to show the way from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, just summarizing it there for you. And that's a really good picture of Philippians chapter two. So if we were looking at Philippians chapter two, the condescension that would be in view would be Christ coming down so he could bring us up. But we're going to be in Romans 10, and the condescension here is a condescension of faith. It is from law, the law, to belief. So a lot of people believe that keeping the law is the way you get saved, and that's the way they try to attain righteousness. And by attaining righteousness, they believe that they'll stand before God one day and they'll be accepted. But the kind of condescension that we see God making for us is from the law, which we cannot keep, to faith, which anybody can have. So he comes down to our level by making salvation practical for us. So when people talk about the gospel, they often emphasize what Jesus did to make the gift potentially ours. So, you know, he came down and he died on the cross to purchase this gift for us so we could accept it. But, you know, even after doing that, if God wanted to, couldn't he have said, okay, well, I purchased this gift for you, but I'm going to expect a number of things before I give you this. So I purchased salvation. So in order for you to have this, which I paid for, you got to be baptized and you got to do this and you got to do that. You got to go to church so many times. You got to share your faith so many times. He, he could have... Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. And a lot of people, sadly, will think of Jesus doing all this to purchase for us this inheritance, 
But then he holds it back. He's kind of holding it back towards himself saying, I have this for you. Yes, but you've got to meet all of these conditions first. And so they get it right when they say Jesus came down to our level to pay for our sin. But when it comes to the actual practical acceptance of this gift, they make it a lot harder than scripture teaches. And so there are two different relationships here. There's the vertical relationship, which is God coming down to earth, Jesus becoming a man. But then there's the horizontal relationship. Once he came down, he comes our way. He comes all the way our way. He came all the way down and he comes all the way our way. And that's the condescension of the faith that I'm talking about. So let's read the text and we'll unpack this more. So in Romans 10, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Those are some of the saddest verses in the Bible. He loves Israel. These people, his brethren, after the flesh, they have a zeal of God, which means in their minds, they're doing God a favor. They're honoring God. And the world should look to them when it considers who is God, what can I do to get to God, who's accepted by God. Well, that's us. You need to look at us. So they have this zeal of God, but he says it's not with knowledge. It is without knowledge. It's, it's ignorance that his people have. And so the first point for your notes this morning is the problem, and that problem is human ignorance. And this is not just the Israelites. The Israelites give us a picture of mankind in general. Guys, if it would have been another nation, let's say it wasn't Israel. Let's say God chose Anglo-Saxons, or God chose the Celts, okay? Or, or God chose the Zulu tribe in South Africa. He, he could pick anybody. If he would have given them the law, it is the human tendency to want to exalt itself because of our sin nature. And we would have gone the exact same route as Israel. We would have had the zeal of God, but we would have lacked the knowledge necessary for salvation. Now, thankfully, not everybody lacked that knowledge. There were a number of Jews who did believe in Jesus. In fact, the early church consisted, at least for the first few years, of predominantly Jews. I mean, you had a handful of Gentiles here and there, but it wasn't really until Paul became an apostle to the Gentiles that the Gentiles started coming in. So at first, there was a remnant for Israel. Paul talks about that elsewhere. But in general, we see that the problem of the Israelites is our problem. We want to put ourselves in the equation. And that's what uh, my grandpa, what my Ditta would always say. He'd say, man wants to put himself in the equation. We want to take credit for our salvation. And that's why works-based salvation is so much of a problem, even within denominations. And that is because we want to take some credit for it. We can't just imagine it's a free gift that doesn't require anything but just faith. And this is something that you'll run into even when you're at a conservative evangelical seminary. You get there, and if you were to ask them, what does it take to be saved? They would say, believe. And you're like, so far, so good, right? That's along with what Scripture teaches. But then you ask them, what is faith? And they'll push up their glasses, roll up their sleeves, sit down and say, okay. And then they would talk on and on and on about how the faith of, of Scripture, when it talks about having faith to get saved, it's not the same kind of faith 
that people normally think of. It's not just a mental assent. It's not just agreeing with facts. It is this, that, and the other. Real biblical faith is trusting God in every aspect of your life. Real biblical faith is committing yourself to God and serving Him consistently. And if you don't serve Him consistently, you can stumble every now and then, but if you're not serving Him consistently in your life, then you don't really have biblical faith. And of course, what most people think of when they hear that is, well, that doesn't really sound like faith. That sounds like faith plus a lot of work. And that's not what Scripture teaches. The reason that the Israelites were ignorant is because they were trying to attain righteousness through the law. And it says, in doing so, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Now that word submit, this is such an important word here. It, it means establish, to stand up, to make firm. Okay? So I want you to imagine like reinforcing something, building a house and reinforcing that house. That's how the Jews were thinking of salvation. We got to build it up and we got to reinforce it and we have to make it strong because if it isn't strong, when we stand before God one day, it'll blow away and we will not be accepted. And they deluded themselves into thinking that we could actually do this. Like we can envision a future in which we stand before God and he tests our life and says, you are righteous enough and I will accept you into my kingdom forever. I won't send you to hell. I will save you because you established, you made firm, you built up your own salvation. That's what they were trying to do. But what Paul says is they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. In establishing or trying to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And submit just means to obey. Ironically, many people in their pursuit of obedience toward God, trying to establish their own salvation, they're actually in rebellion. And that's something that we really need to stress to people. You are not doing God any favors by trying to Live your life perfectly to enter heaven. It's not going to work. And if you think that, oh, God will accept something less than perfection, you're also wrong because he won't accept less than perfection. So if you're trying to build up your righteousness, and, and I state it this way, and I'll just state it as I wrote it because I want to make sure I get it right. But I can't receive the righteousness of God from his hands if my hands are full of my own feeble offerings. If my hands are full, I can't receive his righteousness. I have to say I'm poor. I have to say I'm destitute. I have to say I'm bereft before I can receive his righteousness. And that is submitting. He smiles upon that. He looks upon us saying we can't with pleasure, and that's the obedience that he wants. So it may sound like a contradiction of terms to say obedience of the faith. Because, of course, we as Christians, as evangelicals, and as a free grace congregation, we think, oh, well, Ephesians 2.8. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's not of works. It's the gift of God, right? We know that. It's not of works. But ironically, God, when he looks upon someone and they surrender in this sense, okay, properly defined surrender here, when they surrender their own righteousness and say, we don't have it, save us. He is pleased with that. And he regards that as obeying the truth. There are a number of verses in Scripture that support this. Uh, Paul talks about obeying the truth in Romans 1. Um, in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, he talks about the people who um, they have not obeyed the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he talks about those who have not received the love of the truth. Uh, Peter, we talked about this last week. He discussed the obedience of the truth in uh, 1 Peter 
uh, chapter 2. And so this constant idea in the New Testament of obeying the truth, obeying the truth. What does obeying the truth mean? It just means accepting what God says as true. And what is God saying to us? You can't save yourself, but I want to save you. Okay? You can't love me enough, but I want to love you. You can't commit yourself enough, but I'm committed to you. Do you believe? And if someone believes that, then they're not bringing to God their offerings. God, look at this. I've been this good person. God, look how many times I've gone to church. God, look at this. Look at that. We're not bringing to God anything. Our hands are empty. That's what salvation is. And isn't it so comforting to know that God doesn't expect 100% commitment of us? Because guess what? I'm still not 100% committed in my life. I try to honor God. But let me ask you, if you're honest with yourself, have there been times where you knew the right thing to do, but you didn't do it? And you, and you may have tried, but you didn't try as much as you could have because you know that it was not fatalistic. It wasn't determined. You could have said no, but you didn't, right? And so God is not going to expect someone to say, look, God, I promise you I'm going to stop sinning because guess what? That's a lie. And Paul says it's a lie. John says it's a lie. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, if you say that you're without sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. You can't get saved thinking, okay, I've got to promise God to do something before he accepts me. He just, he just shakes his head and says, no, I'm doing something for you. Let me do this for you. So the problem is human ignorance. You know, when I think of the, the word established to stand up, make firm, I think of the parable that Christ taught about the person who tries to build their house on the shifting sand and how, of course, the house you know, crumbles and it falls because of that. Well, in this case, active obedience is the opposite of what Christ wants from us. He wants us to passively stand by and let him build the, the foundation. When you're trying to build up your own salvation, he says, stop and repent. And we say, what, God? And we listen to him and he says, stop, because that's not going to hold up. It will fall. So I'm going to lay a foundation, and I want you to do nothing but be silent and let me do it. And the, what the most appropriate response is, what? Thank you. <laughs> and of course, when he does that, you're going to have a desire. Of course, that doesn't mean you don't have any other sinful desires at the same time. We do, and that's the struggle of the Christian walk. But getting saved, knowing where we're going when we die, is God saying, stand back and let me work my magic. Because what you need is an internal spiritual makeover, and you can't do anything. So all I want you to do is say, let me do it. And he'll do that. Now, so the problem is human ignorance. Now, let's look at verse 4 and 5. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. So here he's saying there are two potential ways that one could become righteous. There's the law, which according to Moses, the man which doeth those things shall live by them. That means if you do them, you'll live by them. Okay? And the Jews thought that they could do them and thus live by them. Wrong. That's the whole ignorance part. If you can't do it. You cannot keep the law. And that's why in Galatians, Paul says it's through the law that comes knowledge of sin. It's like a mirror. James talks about it too. It's like a mirror. You look into the Word of God, and you see yourself as you really are, and there's no way we could ever be enough. 
And so Christ is the good news because he's the end of the law for righteousness. So there's two paths to righteousness, one which we could never attain, and that is through the law, and then there's the other through faith. But anybody can do that. That's the thing God's basically saying, you want righteousness? I'll give it to you. I will give it to you. Well, what do we got to do, Lord? In John 6, that's what they said. What do we got to do to have eternal life? What do, we, what do we do to be doing the works of God? I think that's the way they said it. What must we be doing to do the works of God? And it's a lot of doing and a lot of works there, right? It's a very packed statement. And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that the Father sent. That's it. That's it. You believe. And of course, what did Jesus say? If we believe in him, we're believing in what he says. What did he say? I'm the resurrection and the life. Believe this. Do you believe it? He said that to Martha. And she said, yes, Lord, I believe. It's simple as that. And so the solution is righteousness by faith and not law. So subjecting yourself to God in Paul's understanding here is not saying, all right, God, I'm going to clean up my life. Subjecting yourself to God is saying, okay, God, I'm never going to be able to be clean. Never enough. Never, never enough to satisfy you. Now, of course, that is going to lead you, if you accept this good news, if you accept the gospel and say, Lord, save me, I can't save myself, you're going to be thankful. Okay, you're going to be grateful. But however many times in your life have you been grateful for something a family member has done for you, but then you treated them awfully, and you felt bad, right? Why did you feel bad? Because they were good to you and you weren't good back. So there's going to be this struggle throughout the Christian life. Are we going to sin after we get saved? Yes, but when we do, we're not going to look at it the same way we did before. After we give in to sin, we're going to say, I feel bad that I did that. Why? Not just because it was sinful, but because I've been saved. God did this for me. I shouldn't have done that to him. When we fall into sin, we shouldn't say, oh my goodness, am I really saved? As Christians, if we really understood the gospel, it's Jesus saved me. How could I do that to him? That's the proper response, not questioning our salvation, but questioning our commit, commitment to him after receiving the gift of salvation, because we should be committed to Jesus, but for the right reason. We're committed to Jesus because he's already committed himself to us, okay? We do works for him because he's already done a great work for us, the work of salvation. We have to put it in the proper order, or else it's great confusion, and people aren't going to understand the gospel so they can be saved. People put the cart before the horse. They think, okay, before God accepts me, I've got to lay down all of these things. And that's the opposite. We lay down the things because we've received the gift. And we struggle to do that. And sometimes after we lay them down, guess what? We pick them back up again. Okay? You know, speaking of Mother's Day, it reminds me of my mom. My mom knew that Jesus loved her. She knew that if she died... Even in a, in, a, in a period of her life where she was sinning, she was in that cycle, you know, cycle of, of sin, and then she'd come back and she would clean herself up, and then she'd go back to the sin again. She knew throughout the entire cycle that she was saved. She talked to me about this. She said, when I was sinning, I knew that I was sinning, and I knew it was wrong because Jesus loved me and he saved me, and I shouldn't be doing this. But she did it anyways. And so she had a proper understanding of salvation. Now she wasn't being the best disciple. <laughs> and that and that's something that, yes, and that is the case of the flesh prevailing, and we don't have to let the flesh prevail because we have the Holy Spirit. So now we have these competing desires. We have a nature that we receive from Christ when we're born again, and then we have this flesh that lingers behind, and we have to decide which one we're going to nurture. 
We have to decide which one we're going to invest in. And it's really hard to do that sometimes. But I believe that when people first get saved, they start out as a baby, as a baby Christian. And the goal is to get them plugged into a church, get them plugged into Christian fellowship, have good examples, good mentors, good Bible teaching. And when they have all that good influence in their life, you're reinforcing and you're strengthening this new part of them. It's very, it's very fresh. It's very new. They have this new nature. Okay, just like babies, you know, we're not going to expect the same thing of them as we would older children. Do you know in uh, John 15, when it talks about if the vine doesn't bear fruit, a lot of times it's translated as taken away and removed. But the proper translation in Greek is if the vine doesn't bear fruit, it's lifted up. It's lifted up. And, and that practice was, and I think Christy knows more about this than I do, but the idea is when you lift it up and you tie it to another vine that is producing the fruit, then it is going to lead to the other vine producing fruit. At least that's the idea. I know that that's what they do. They, they tie up the vines. Wow. They tie them up. And so the idea is that we're going to be... They prune them at the same time. Yes, yes. And we all need pruning because Jesus said that even the vines that produce fruit are pruned so they can produce even more. And so God disciplines us. God tests us because he wants us to produce more. But the ones that aren't producing, I believe in that context, personally, it's referring to new believers who haven't even had a chance to produce anything. Like, what are they giving to God right now? Well, they're not really giving to God much at all. I mean, are, are these people really contributing to the kingdom yet? No, they've just got saved. They haven't really produced a lot of fruit. So what's the goal? Get them with believers who are producing so they can learn how to do it. So... There are a lot of interesting practices that I think we miss out on whenever we're studying these agricultural parables. I miss out on them because I don't know a whole lot about farming at all. You know a ton more than I do. And so we have to go back to that background and research it some to have a good understanding of it. But um, let's move on now to well, one, one real small point before I move on, okay, because we have a good bit to cover and we need to move on a little bit faster than we're going. But um, for the second point... You know, I say that Christians may not love God as much as they should, because I don't, guys. If I'm honest, I don't love God as much as he deserves. But each one, each Christian has loved God enough to accept his love. When we think about love, we often think about emotion, right? Feelings, you know? But in Scripture, love takes on a very different aspect, and it's what we do for somebody. It's service rendered to somebody. In fact, the old word agape in Greek, it originally, and in secular Greek writing, referred to making preference, making something or someone preferential. And that was considered love. Now, of course, that doesn't sound to us, the English mindset doesn't sound like love, okay? But to prefer something over the other was to love that thing or love that person. And whenever we stand before God and we're convicted, this is at the moment where we're, we're presented the gospel and we are being led by the Lord to, to this gift of salvation to receive him. Whenever that happens, we have to decide what will we prefer, the truth or a lie? Now, the truth is going to hurt because the truth is going to say you're a sinner and you can't save yourself and you're not good enough. And no one likes to hear that. Do y'all like to hear that? I certainly don't. But if you prefer the truth... If you prefer to listen to God when he says, I am righteous and I have been offended 
Your sin has offended me, and there is a penalty for this, but I love you, and I sent my son to pay your penalty, to, to pay your debt, so I can give you this gift for free. If we prefer that truth, then we are, in the eyes of God, offering an act of love to him. It is a love offering to God, just listening to him. And in fact, um, y'all have heard this verse before in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. Now, of course, we have to grow in that. Don't we doubt God sometimes? If we had perfect love of God, would we ever doubt God? No. But it all begins with just a little bit, right? I mean, think of the condescension of God. He doesn't say, listen, I want you to love me, okay? Like Paul loved God after years and years and years of suffering and persecution and spiritual growth. No, he says, I want you to love me in this one simple way. I'm telling you the truth. This is the truth. This is the gospel. Do you believe it? And believing that means you don't believe that you can save yourself. You don't believe that you can live righteously. You believe that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one who paid. Salvation is free in him. Do you believe that? And if you say, yes, I believe, then the Lord smiles and he treats that act as our first act of love to him. We just reciprocated. We're no longer rebelling and running away. Just the fact of us turning and listening and believing was the first act of love towards God. And of course, it's meant to grow beyond that. I love God more than I did when I was six years old, okay, because I've grown in my understanding of him. And I know I've got a long way to go. And I'm going to grow in my love for all eternity. I think every single blessing of heaven is just going to make my love grow even more. And you're going to wonder, how can it get any more? It's going to get even more. How can God get any better than this? How can I love him more than I already do? Well, God's going to keep surprising you. But it all begins with that simple act of saying, I believe you. I don't believe the lie. I believe you. And from then on, we grow. Now, the third point is um, the creed. The creed. And verse 6 and 7 address this. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall ascend into the deep, that is to bring Christ again up from the dead. It's a say not. That's Don't believe the lie. Don't say to yourself, Jesus really isn't the Lord who came down from heaven. Okay, don't say that. Believe the truth. Don't say Jesus is still in the grave. He died. He's just a man. Don't say that. Don't say that sin hasn't been atoned for because it has. So this is the word of faith. This is the righteousness of faith, guys. If we get anything right, I pray to God we get this right and we don't change it. Because these two points of the word of faith, okay, because that's what he calls it. This is my message, the word of faith. This is the true content of faith. And it's two points, simple points. Who is Jesus? And what did he do for us? Who is Jesus? He's the Lord who came down from heaven. Say not in your heart, who's going to go up into heaven to bring him down? Okay, that's an act of skepticism. Jesus really isn't the Lord. He really hasn't come down from heaven. He said, don't say that. Say that he is the Lord, that he has come down. So that tells us who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord. In fact, in uh, verse 13, this quote comes from the book of Joel. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Lord there in Joel chapter 2 refers to Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh, self-existent, the great I am who came down from above. That's the first point. Do you have to understand the Trinity to get saved? No but you cannot put Jesus any lower than that. You cannot make Jesus a prophet. 
you cannot make Jesus a a chosen one on the same level as a, a regular human priest or a king. Jesus has to, in the word of faith, the gospel, he has to be the highest Lord. He has to be the highest one in the universe. You can't get higher than him. That's the word of faith. And the second point is grace is infinite. It's everlasting. When it says that Jesus came up from the dead, Paul, of course, is anticipating that if you're reading chapter 10, what have you already read? All the other chapters. And in all the other chapters, when Jesus comes up from the dead, what is he declaring? That he has paid our sin. You know, for three days and three nights, the disciples were not convinced that Jesus had paid their debt. It wasn't until the resurrection that they were convinced this one is really the Son of God and he really did pay our debt on the cross. It was the 100% proof that they needed to believe in Jesus. And so the first point is Jesus is Lord who came down from above. And the second point is Jesus paid for all of our sin. And by coming back from the grave, he demonstrates that beyond a shadow of a doubt. So that's our creed. One Lord came down, one Savior rose up. One Lord came down and one Savior rose up. And when you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's what it means. Jesus is Lord in that sense. He is Savior in that sense. And whenever I share the gospel, I'm not going to leave one of those points out. And sadly, I think that evangelicals, they miss one or the other. A lot of evangelicals, or rather, I will say all evangelicals. If you're really a traditional evangelical, um, the definition would include that you believe in the deity of Christ. And so you get the Lord part right. You know, Jesus is Lord. He came down from above. Well, good. You should have that right. Or else you're a cult member. You're a heretic. But what about the second point? that he rose up from the dead. Well, they'll say, of course we believe that he rose up from the dead. But what does Paul mean by Jesus rising from the dead? He has declared that your sin has been canceled out. Jesus was, again, as we've studied before in 1 Peter 3, he was made alive in spirit as soon as he died. In the eyes of the Father, he was accepted. God knew, even if the rest of the world didn't. But Jesus coming back from the dead declares that we have this everlasting life because of Jesus, because of his resurrection. His resurrection life, which has no end, is our resurrection life. If Jesus is going to live forever in heaven, then because of our faith in him, we will live forever in heaven. Could Jesus ever die again? No. Because he has incorruptible life, indestructible life. Can you destroy what's indestructible? No. And so our everlasting life hinges on this fact. So these two facts together... The Lord came down and one Savior rose up. That's the gospel that we preach. The fourth point, starting in verse 8, is what saith it? Or actually, I'll read the verses first. What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. A lot of people will be sticklers about this and say, oh, well, you're saying that you actually got to confess with your mouth audibly in order to be saved. Well, Paul is referring back to the book of Deuteronomy. It's talking about the law. You can look up the reference there yourself. Um, so since he's using this quote, he's obviously going to refer to it's in your mouth. Okay, the word of faith that I'm preaching is something you're you're believing in your heart and you're confessing because those two elements, believing and confessing, are from his Deuteronomy quote. Okay, Paul would, of course, if you asked him point blank, are you saved when you believe or are you saved when the words come out of your mouth? He'd say, as soon as you have faith in your heart, you're saved. How do we know that? 
Acts chapter 10, Cornelius hadn't spoke a word. Nobody in the household had spoken a word, but they had believed and they had received the Holy Spirit. While Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit came upon them. But what Paul is saying here is it's natural whenever you believe something in your heart that you express that with your mouth. So let's say you're talking with somebody, a Christian is talking with an unbeliever and the unbeliever believes it. What is going to be the next natural thing to do? Do you believe this? The Christian will ask. And the unbeliever will say, yes. So he's saying, in that case, if you confess something with your mouth, with faith in your heart, then you are saved. So of course you're saved before you utter any words. But I think it's natural for us to make an audible profession. Um, in fact, when I got saved when I was six, I know I was saved before the words left my mouth. But I did say a prayer because that's a natural way for us to communicate with God. I mean, doesn't God already know the thoughts of our heart before we take our prayers to him? Do I have to speak out loud for God to know my prayer and to answer my prayer? Well, of course not. But wouldn't it be kind of odd if we went our whole life and didn't say a single word out loud to God? I mean, wouldn't that be strange? So it's a natural thing to speak your faith. And this could be in the quietness of your own home. This could be in the seclusion you know, of privacy wherever you're at, just saying to God, God, I, I believe and I know you hear me. And I ask you to save me from my sins. It says in verse 13, again, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this isn't saying that it is a requirement to speak audibly, but it is a natural expression of the faith that's in our heart. Can I tell you about my friend that had been a believer for like 30, 40 years? He came to me one day and said, I realize I've never actually been a Christian because I've never said it with my mouth. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, that's where, if you're listening to us, understand that we are not saying that you have to speak out loud anything in order to be saved. We're saying that that is a natural expression of one's faith. Um, and this is something between you and God. This isn't saying confess before men. There is something else in the Bible about that. Look at Matthew chapter 10. It says we should uh, confess uh, our faith before men. And if we do that, then God will commend us. Jesus will confess us before the Father and before all the angels. That is for a eternal reward. Whenever there's persecution and you're asked, are you a believer? What happens if you really are and you say, uh, uh, no, I don't know this, this Jesus? Well, the same thing that happened to Peter. What happened to Peter? He was forgiven. Right. Okay, so... You will be forgiven. God's not going to send you to hell because you had a, a moment of fear that led to you not doing what you should have done. Because again, salvation isn't by works. So if you had that faith in your heart, you knew what you were doing was wrong. And of course, you're not going to receive the reward that someone would receive if they stood strong in their faith. Let's say they stood before the crowd and they said, I believe in Jesus. I don't care if you cut my head off. Okay, that person's going to be rewarded by Jesus. A person who in fear and in cowardice says, uh, uh, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm not with them. That person who knows better, if they really believed, which I believe this is something that certainly could happen, they're going to go to heaven when they die, but they're not going to receive that reward. So that's important to understand. Um, the fourth point is the method, believe the creed and confess to God. So what Paul says here is this is between you and God. You believe the creed, believe the content that he expresses here, who Jesus is, Salvation is free, and if you believe that and confess it to God, it's between you and Him, then you are saved. And again, I believe my heart confessed to God, my faith, before the words left my mouth. Believe the creed and confess to God. Now let's look at verses 11 through 13. 
For Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you want an example of a sinner's prayer in the Bible, I think this is a place you could go to. It's simple, okay? What does this prayer sound like? Well, nothing in particular. I mean, my prayer, I don't even remember all the words that I said. And you don't have to say a certain set of words. It's not magic. It's not an incantation. Uh, the sinner's prayer of the thief on the cross in Luke 23 is different than the sinner's prayer of the publican in Luke 18. In Luke 18, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in Luke 23, he says, remember me. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And in both cases, Jesus said to the publican, that man went to his house justified. And the thief on the cross, surely you will be to, uh, today with me in paradise. So the sinner's prayer was different, right? But it didn't matter the exact words that they chose. It was that their heart called upon the Lord for salvation. And you don't and you don't have to. You don't have to. I don't know that I spoke it audibly. I I don't I just knew I just asked Jesus, you know, I wanted again and he knew I accepted him and I wanted to be saved and I and he saved Absolutely. And so again, the, the word confess with, or the phrase confess with your mouth, the mouth part, okay? The reason he says mouth is because he's quoting from a passage which discusses confessing with your mouth. So for the sake of the connection, he's going to use the same. And it's natural for us to pray out loud. However, you don't have to. He's not saying that you have to do that. Um, yes, yes. And of course, if you... Yes. And that's and that is our first that's our first step in discipleship. And of course that becomes formal. It's a formal declaration in the form of baptism. So baptism is where we symbolically in this in this grand occasion declare that we are one with Jesus now through the Holy Spirit. We have been saved. We're part of the family of God. Um, so yes, absolutely. We should declare with our mouth. And again, that's part of us growing in our discipleship walk um, with the Lord. Uh, but believe the creed and confess to God. The last, or sorry, the last point, second to last point, number five, the demographic. Whosoever will means no exception. And guys, I don't even have to explain that one. Whosoever will means no exception. He doesn't pick a select group. Why do some people get saved and why do people not get saved? This person rejects, this one accepts. It's their choice. I've had family members ask me this before because they believed in election in a sense that I do not believe in election. They believed in unconditional election. Well, why does this one believe and why does this one not? I said, I don't know. Ask them. Everybody's got different reasons. Ultimately, it's there's something in the gospel that we are not willing to accept. It could be we're not willing to accept Jesus is more than a man. Some people have a problem with that, and it holds them back. Some people have a problem with the idea that salvation is free and you don't have to work for it. They, they're scandalized by it, that the, the salvation would be free. And so they have a hard time accepting that. So it's going to vary from person to person, right? But uh, salvation is free to all who believe, and anyone can believe. That doesn't mean that everyone will believe. Now, it mentions Jew and Greek here because back then that was the real noticeable division in the early church. Today, a Jew and Greek disagreement 
it doesn't really exist in the evangelical church. In fact, whenever we hear about Messianic Jews, we think that's cool. It's cool as grits. Like, hey, I got a Messianic Jewish friend, you know, and he told me this stuff and all this stuff from the Old Testament. I understand better now. We think that's cool, right? And we have Messianic ministries come to our, you know, white Gentile churches, and we hear them preach and talk about this stuff, and we rejoice. We rejoice, right? Back then, it wasn't that way, okay? There was a lot of tension between Jews and Gentiles. Today, um, I, I think that I think we don't really deal with that same exact issue. So that illustrates just this broad point. And the broad point is, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. Okay? It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter. If you believe, you can be saved too. And you will be saved if you call the name of the Lord. So number five is whosoever will means no exception. And lastly, wrapping it up with verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Guys, the greatest blessing I think that I've ever had in life is leading someone to Jesus. It's the best blessing. I don't think anything can top it. And God wants us to be discipled. And as his disciples, this is what we're called to do. It's part of our commission. Matthew 28, he says, make disciples of all nations. And those disciples are to go and make other disciples. So uh, sharing the gospel is part of discipleship. There are lots of different ways you can do it. Different mediums, whether it be art or poetry or you know, writing articles or books or podcasting or vlogging or talking to someone in person, you know, on the street, a cold call. You know, all of these things are ways we can share the gospel. But besides being reminded of the great joy of it and that being a motivation to share our faith, I want to say one last thing before we wrap it up because um, my two-year-old is objecting to how long this has been going on. Um, the last thing that I want to mention is this. The last, sorry, the last blank is the commission. Be God's outstretched hands. Be God's outstretched hands. It actually says in uh, verse number 18, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went out into all the earth and their words into the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that ask not after me. This is referring to Israelites rejecting and Gentiles accepting the gospel. But the last verse there in chapter 10 says, But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. So we need to be God's outstretched hands. That's our job as the body. And my challenge to the church or anybody who is listening to this, you cannot be God's outstretched hands if you don't have a proper conception of the gospel. You can't. You cannot. Yes, you can. You cannot be a faithful representative of Jesus like Paul was if you don't understand the gospel. So again, what is the word of faith? Who is Jesus? He's Lord of Lord, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He came down from heaven, so he is God in the flesh. That's something we cannot subtract from the gospel. And two, salvation is free. Jesus paid. It's been done. All you have to do is believe and confess. All you have to do is call on the Lord for salvation and he will hear you. 
And that's it. That's the only act of love or obedience or subjection that he wants from you right now is just let him save you. And we pray that if you're listening, you will do that. And with that, we hope that you have a blessed day.